Well, as you know, um, we're, we're pretty near the start of this uh, series that uh, looks at Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, and if we were walking with the two uh, on, the ra- on the road to Emmaus, when the Lord Jesus uh, opened the scriptures to them and showed the things about himself, uh, we'd, we'd probably just be in the first mile or so. Um, he, we've just looked at what creation reveals us regarding Christ, and we also looked at what is said about the Lord Jesus uh, in the fall of man. And tonight, what we're looking at specifically uh, is the flood, the deluge, uh, and, and the ark. So that, that brings us to Genesis chapter 6. And what, of course, we're going to find is that the New Testament uh, teaches us, instructs us, gives us insights, shows the whole integration of the entire Word of God. And so there's been a couple of readings from the New Testament as well as uh, chapter 6 here. So it will involve a little bit of concentration and flicking back and forward to get the sense of things. But let's uh, begin by reading from Genesis uh, chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. Now, uh, down to chapter 7 and at verse 11. 
in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. Now we're going to turn over to the New Testament for some comment there. Mark has already uh, read to us how the Lord Jesus Christ uh, cites Noah in Matthew 24. We're going to see what Peter had to say uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. Um, you remember that when, when we looked at the road to Emmaus and the Lord opened the scriptures that specifically what he was saying was that they talk about my death. You know, they talk about my death. So specifically that point will come up here. Verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. 
And then over in Second Peter, chapter 2, and uh, verse 5, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then over to Second Peter chapter 3, and uh, we'll look at verse number uh, 5. The mockers, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Amen. May God uh, use his word to touch our hearts and encourage us uh, tonight. So we'll be touching on uh, the range of scripture readings that we've just had there. But if we go back to Genesis 6, uh, just to start with. Now clearly... You know, Noah lived um, at a time when the world was only a few generations down from the time of Adam and the fall. But in that relatively short period of time, it had just really descended into absolute wickedness. And really that's a kind of testament to the power and the reality of the curse and the, and the poison of sin that had entered into the hearts of the people who had been born. People were dying, and the wickedness and the violence and the corruption is just proliferating. And God makes this decision that such is the extent of this that he is he's going to intervene. It says that he is grieved. God is saddened. and He's grieved at his heart, and a deluge is going to come. But an ark will be built for safety as well. Now, there are just three points that I think are kind of highlighted, at least I would like to highlight them tonight, um, and this is how I'm going to take things. So I'm going to talk, first of all, about um, God's judgment. In fact, I'll speak about God's patience before I do that. God's patience, then we'll speak about God's judgment And then we'll speak about God's salvation and Christ's suffering because all of these things actually come out of the narrative about the flood and about the ark. Now, if you were to flick back over to 1 Peter 3, just to remind yourself, Peter really, when he talks about Noah, is answering a criticism at the time. And the criticism is people are saying, you know, Where is the promise of Christ's coming? You know, this whole world of ours has just rolled along and everything is just the way it always has been. Nothing has ever changed. There has never been any intervention by God. There's never going to be the coming of Christ. Why are you talking about this? And Peter says, well, let's just stop for a minute and let's just remember that God, on a number of occasions, has actually intervened in the affairs of men. But God has been patient, and that is why there is a delay. And God was patient in the times 
of Noah. You know, if you look at some of the sums that are uh, mentioned here, the figures and numbers, I mean, he probably preached for about 100 years before the ark was actually constructed. Certainly from the time his children were born, when he was 500, to when the ark was completed and God shut the door, he was 600 years old at that time. And he's referred to, as we saw in in 2 Peter, as a preacher of righteousness, a herald of righteousness. And so during that period of time, that was an opportunity uh, when people could respond to what God was saying through Noah, that the flood was on its way. There was a terrible catastrophe that was about to happen. And, and this was the opportunity for them to respond to that. And God's patience is something that is, is emphasized. It's quite interesting if you look at verse 3 of chapter 6. The Lord says at that point, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, or my spirit will not always strive with man. And, of course, what is happening is this, that God's spirit is striving with men in the sense that he is challenging them. The spirit of God is speaking to them. As we know, the Lord Jesus says when the spirit was to come in all his fullness, he was going to convict the world of sin, much in the same way as what happened to Saul of Tarsus. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. You know, your conscience is bothering you today. And that's God's spirit striving with people. And he was doing that all the time. He says, it's not always going to happen. My spirit will not always strive with man. My patience is here, and the opportunity is here, but there will come a time when that day of opportunity will will be over. And as we found, God closed the door of the ark one day, and and the striving of God's spirit ceased uh, on that particular occasion. And so... What we take as we look, first of all, at this narrative as a lesson for all of us in God's goodness is that God is patient. And he doesn't, as Peter reminds us, if we had read further down, he does not desire the death of anybody. But he wants everybody to come to him in repentance and live. And he gives us all that opportunity of responding that is why he's not intervening at this very moment again. It's, it's his great patience. And yet the Lord Jesus picked up on that, didn't he? And he said, you've got to be careful. You've got to watch. You've got to be vigilant. Because as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be when the Son of Man comes. People will just be going about the daily round. They'll be involved in all the things that just fill every single day. And then the flood came and it swept them away. And that's the way it will be when the Son of Man comes and Christ returns. You know, and these are not meant to be scaremongering tactics. It's the reality of the truth of Scripture. God's patience on the one hand, but God's intervention on the other. And that brings us to that second point. Not only God's patience, but, but God's, God's judgment. I mean, this was absolutely catastrophic what happened. I mean, we've seen what's happening down in Wales as far as, you know, Storm Dennis is concerned. I mean, this was a million times worse than anything that we've experienced. I remember somebody telling me about visiting the Grand Canyon 
And uh, he said, you know, people expected me to kind of be singing something like, how great thou art, when I think about the handiwork of God's creation. But he said, I couldn't help but think of the story of Noah and of the judgment of God and how that was what carved out something like this. It was the deluge, you know, the the catastrophe of that terrible flood and the total devastation when everything was destroyed. I tried to emphasize that in the reading. Everything that had breath, it died apart from what entered into the ark. The ark. Now, there's a very interesting point, actually. I just want to turn you to this one, um, because I actually only noticed this relatively recently. And it's found in uh, Jude's little epistle. And uh, it's at verse 5 of Jude. It's not specifically referring to the flood. It's referring to other interventions of God and his judgment. And in the ESV, which is where I've started using this version, and so this is how I noticed it for the first time, it reads like this. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And and on it goes. The Lord Jesus is specifically mentioned as the one who destroyed. We don't often think about that really in the same sense. But here we have these examples, including the story of the deluge, the flood. And it was Christ who was involved in this bringing the flood, the judgment. And of course, if we go to some of the other passages of Scripture that make more of this, Revelation chapter 6, for instance, in verse 16, in a coming day, there's this cry that goes out from the, the, the lost who say, hide us from the face of him who sits upon the, on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Now that seems a a paradox. The the lamb, the gentle lamb, the wrath of the lamb. And yet these things are held together. And the Lord Jesus himself will be the judge of all the earth. And we we need to understand this whole concept of justice to understand the reality of the message uh, of the Bible. Now there is another kind of... um, interesting and serious part uh, that we perhaps again don't often think about Um, and you know it's this idea here in in, in Genesis chapter 6 when you know God comments on the fact that there were these sons of God that saw the daughters of men and they took them as their wives now there's been a few few opinions and views on this but rather than go into the whole thing uh, the kind of usual way of interpreting this is that the sons of God um, were probably demons and you have these this kind of super race of men of renown powerful people called the Nephilim in verse 4 and we know, we know, for instance, from the times of Christ, the man Legion, you know, who was possessed by demons and had superhuman strength. He couldn't even put chains round about them. He was able to break the chains. And uh, 
there were this, this intervention into the affairs of humanity by fallen, evil, demonic powers that possessed people. And, and, and God looks at this. And, and, and that's where Peter's comment in 1 Peter 3, I feel, comes into things. You see that, if you turn over there, it talks about um, those who were the spirits in prison. 1 Peter 3, verse 19. These demons were imprisoned by, by Christ at that time. And, and what this now is referring to in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that after the death of Christ and his burial, what happened? Well, it tells us here that Christ went and proclaimed the triumph and the victory of his death. You know, the demonic powers that must have surrounded the cross and the crucifixion perhaps momentarily felt that they had won the victory. And yet Christ comes and proclaims to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And so it paints this picture again of just what a vile scene it was at that time, not just on the face of the earth, but this demonic intervention that caused eventually the patience of God to dry up and the, the judgment of God to fall upon this earth. The final point, which is better news, uh, is that here we also see the salvation uh, of God because there is a place of safety. There's, there's the ark that is constructed. Um, and it is constructed uh, as far as God's own design is concerned. And it's this that saves Noah and his family. And of course the picture is a very powerful picture if we try to imagine it. You know, we think about the fountains of the great deep erupting and being opened up and almost tsunami-like and the, and the rain pouring down for 40 days and 40 nights and this, this ark being battered and tossed about as far as the storm was concerned and yet those who are inside are safe, absolutely safe and at the end of it all when the wickedness of that world is, is wiped away and dealt with and they, they walk out onto a clean new earth, safe, saved through the storm, protected by the ark, saved because they were inside. And it's a tremendous picture, this, you know, of the cross of Calvary and of being in Christ. You know, as they were in the ark, those who are in Christ are saved. Because they're protected by what Christ was battered with upon the cross. The storm that he entered into. You know, there's one of the old hymns that says, O oh Christ, you know, what burdens bowed thy head. It says, the tempest's awful voice was heard. O oh Christ, it broke against thee. Thy open bosom was my ward. It braved the storm for me. Thy form was scarred, thy visage marred. Now cloudless peace for me because I'm in Christ. 
and I'm safe. And he's the place of refuge that the book of Hebrews talks about, that we run to Christ as our place of safety and refuge from the storm. And we will be protected because Christ takes that for us. Now, there's a very interesting point, actually, in uh, chapter 6, when it talks about the construction uh, of, the, of the ark. Uh, down in verse 14, um, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And so it's not just a wooden construction. So there's pitch or like tar, uh, which is smeared over the internal and the external construction of the boat. Not just dabbed on, but it's covered, plastered with the pitch, obviously to be, to be watertight. But the interesting thing about this word, and I, I did my due diligence and checked this out and even consulted Ian on this one to make sure I was not on the wrong track, that um, this word used here for cover is used in other places in our Bible. So, for instance, if you were to turn with me uh, to the book of Exodus uh, and chapter 30 um, and verse number 10, you know, this is about the high priest and the sacrifices. It says, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns, that's the horns of the altar, once a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year. It is very, very interesting to see that the word cover in Genesis 6 is the same word atonement here in this verse. It's the same idea as Psalm 32. Oh, the blessedness of the man whose sins are what? Whose sins are covered. Covered. And of course the idea here is Aaron covered the horns of the altar with blood. That's exactly what he did on the Day of Atonement when he went into the holy place and the mercy seat on the ark was covered with blood. And that covering with blood meant atonement had been made. And so there is a a hint, there is a picture here. The word atonement is introduced in the narrative of Noah. The place of safety, the ark, there is a covering. You know, and and we look at the cross and we see the storm and out of that storm there comes atonement for those who have found refuge through trusting in Christ. Now, to take you just a wee bit further on this one as we bring things to a close, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 again and just some of the terminology, it's quite a difficult uh, couple of verses here, but if we just uh, concentrate on this, Uh, for a minute or two. So, uh, in verse 20 of 1 Peter 3, uh, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So what does this mean? Well, what I think it maybe means uh, is this. It's this idea of being in Christ. 
in the same way as the people were in the ark. You know, fundamentally, when it uses the word baptism here, it is it's actually talking about my, my union with Christ by faith. I am immersed into Christ. I am submerged in Christ. That is the link, the connection that I now have through faith. I am indissolubly joined to Christ. And of course, water baptism pictures that reality in the same way someone's completely immersed and submerged in water. That is the reality of what happens to me spiritually when I place faith in Christ. I am completely in Christ. Christ is in me, you know. In the same way as these people, they were in the ark and the ark passed through the water. And at the end of it all, the old life and the old world, it all gone. They stepped out into a brand new world again. And God's covenant was made with Noah. And, uh, you know, this is, this is, I think, part of the point that's being made uh, to us here. Uh, because of our faith in Christ and what his death has done for us, it changes everything by our immersion, being in Christ. Now let me just say a little bit about the covenant um, that was established. If you go to chapter 9 of Genesis, um, God speaks to him and he says, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make this covenant with you now. Um, God promises that he's never going to destroy the world by a flood again. Of course, when we go to Peter... It talks about the fact that it will not be a flood, but it will, be, it will be fire next time. But God says, I won't do that. And my covenant I make with you, my promise, I establish it with putting my bow in the clouds. And of course we know uh, that is, uh, that's the rainbow. I think uh, as a little aside, uh, there is a need for Christian people to reclaim the rainbow in our day and age. And the imagery of the, the, the rainbow, which has been taken over by the LGBT uh, community. Let, let us remember what the original rainbow really represents. It represents all the things, actually, that have been emphasized here in the story of Noah. It represents God's patience. It represents God's judgment. It represents God's salvation and his gospel. And the new covenant that he was making with Noah... Uh, and his goodness at that time. And uh, so, another New Old Testament passage we've come to tonight. Um, and perhaps because of the commentaries that we now have in the New Testament, there are some keys that have been able to just kind of unlock its meaning a little bit more for us again. Uh, to see that Christ is here as well. And it, it deepens our understanding and our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, perhaps again, it just makes the exclusivity of the gospel such an important thing. There was one door in one ark, and they had to go through that if they were to be saved. And they had to be alert to the warnings of the man who preached righteousness that a day was coming when God's patience would come to an end. And we remind ourselves, as we did earlier, about the reality of the coming of Christ again. A wonderful truth that we need to re-grasp. But people need to be warned because 
as it was in the days of Noah, it will be when the Son of Man returns, when the people were swept away who were not prepared for his coming. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for the wonderful narratives in the page of Scripture and how we are trying to learn that we learn something about our Lord Jesus Christ, even in passages that seem so well known to us. And so, Lord, we just pray that you'll touch our hearts and encourage us, um, in particular, as we think about the sufferings of Christ and how we are safe in him. Uh, Lord, may that be a real blessing to our souls. And so we commit ourselves to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.